is Luke 22, 1 through 14. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher sends, says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. Excuse me. And they went and found it just as he has told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. Let's pray. Lord, we are always amazed at your love, at your courage, at your wisdom, at your faithfulness. We praise you so much, Lord, just as we were singing. We love you. We just can't thank you enough for all that you have done for us. Help us now to hear your voice as you speak through Grant. And we praise you in your name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Judy. Well done. Well, this week's... Um, passage is a it's a quieter scene than the scenes that we've been in Luke the last few weeks it's uh you know it happens on the it happens inside for starters you know it's it's largely in rooms that the action is taking place there's there's contrast with what's been happening before you remember that Jesus has been teaching in the temple courts, and it's been, I'm sure, loud, and there's been opposition, and you can just imagine people shouting and people arguing among themselves and all like that. And, there, and certainly it's going to get pretty violent very quickly after um, Jesus' time with his disciples in uh, this upper room. As soon as we leave the upper room, you know, there's going to be knife fights and and mockings and crowns of thorns and all the way to a crucifixion. And it's going to be, uh, again, loud. And, and in between is this little quiet moment. And, 
You know, I'm sure your mind goes the same place my mind goes. This is a lot like a, a, a Rocky training montage um, or any sports movie or any war movie. There's like the initial conflict where like there's a press conference and both sides are like, you're the bad guy. No, you're the bad guy. Ah, we're going to get you. We're going to get you. This is one of the reasons I'm a boxing fan. I love like three, two days before the fight, there's a press conference and everybody's like, I'm going to knock this guy out. I'm going to knock this guy out. And you're like, ooh, they seem like they're going to try to knock each other out. And, but then there's, then everybody goes to their corner. Everybody goes inside. And if you're, if it's a proper action movie, you get a training montage. You get like, here's what happens next is, you know, Drago's cheating and Rocky's climbing up mountains or whatever. Or this is the way this army is preparing. This is the way, you know, like, like Dom Toretto's tuning up his car, whatever it is, you know, like there's some, no, okay. Won't do that again. Ah, um, <laughs> seriously, look it up. Um, but, uh, um, you know, there's this time of preparation before these forces come head to head. And I, the thing that I'm really taken with is the difference between the way that Jesus is preparing for his arrest, his betrayal, his, the, the time of this action that is the reason he came, and the way the oppressors of Jesus or the, the opposition of Jesus is preparing. Last week, there was conflict. Today, there is no conflict. Rather, there is preparation, there is plotting, there is planning. Jesus has retreated to a quiet meal with his disciples, with his, uh, and the leaders in Jerusalem have retreated to plot and scheme, to plan a murder. We get to see how these different parties prepare for the showdown that is the cross of Christ. You know, Luke is a historian, he's a master storyteller. And we can feel the tension build during this time of planning before the real conflict begins in the early morning hours after this evening that we'll spend the next couple Sundays in. You know, even I love the, the Lucan narrative, how uh, you can tell Luke is writing to, you know, primarily Gentile Christians. He says, so it was the time of preparation of the, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's called the Passover. Jews wouldn't need to know that, but these people that he's writing to need to know. But as Luke writes this story, tells this narrative, you can't help, and if you've read Luke, you know, all the way through, it's been going on for a long time, but the first thing we need to notice is that we are building to this hour, as Luke uses the language. Luke uses, a, Luke uses a, a sense of time to build expectation and to give focus to this moment. This is the time that Luke has been building towards his whole gospel. We've talked about this almost every week, but you remember there was the ministry of Jesus up in the Sea of Galilee, and he's on this side of the lake ministering to Jewish communities, and he goes the other side of the lake and some of the same miracles are happening in Gentile communities and all of that. And Jesus is, 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 we can't, the reader knows for sure who Jesus is 
by the time the journey to Jerusalem starts. And then it's like several chapters, nine chapters, and could be up to nine months of this long journey, an, an, an unusually long journey. It doesn't take nine months to get to Jerusalem from Galilee. It takes a few days. And yet Jesus is taking this long route. And as Luke tells it, there's this sense of like, this is not just another trip for the Passover meal, but rather we are building towards something profound that is going to be the culmination of this whole story. And then as the time happens and we get closer and closer, kind of the words begin to heighten in tension. Verse 1 says, the feast of unleavened bread drew near. Now he doesn't have to tell you what year it was. He doesn't have to tell you who the governor was. He doesn't have to put any other time markers. No, rather, this is the time. The one time of these events. The passion of the Christ is about to take place. There's this sense of anticipation. And if you're a Jewish reader of Luke's gospel, which certainly there were Jewish readers of Luke's gospel too, you, the, the clues wouldn't be missed to what's happening. As he says, look, this is coming up on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover. When our narrative starts, it's likely the day of preparation. So I think if we think about how we celebrate Christmas, there are some similarities. It's not exactly the same. But Christmas Eve is a day of preparation. There's pies in the oven. There's meals being prepared. If you're lucky, there's tamales being wrapped. And then we celebrate Christmas Eve together as a family. And then Christmas is a different kind of celebration. And this is, this is the way they would have thought about Passover too. When we pick up the story, it's the day of preparation. Everybody's getting ready. The lambs are being slaughtered. Everybody's on the grill. Lambs are being slaughtered and roasted for the Passover meal that's about to happen. And then that evening would be Passover. If you've been lucky enough to, to be here on a Good Friday, and we haven't decided, I don't know if we'll do this again, this, maybe that's not an every year thing, but where we've shelled, shared a Seder meal, a Passover meal together as a church family on a Good Friday, you know that, that this is a, a fun family meal. This is a, a fun celebration, but it is all rooted in the Exodus narrative. What we're supposed to remember is how God saved us from Egypt all those years ago. So that would be the shared meal would happen on that evening. And then the next day, they would celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Passover and Unleavened Bread were initially two separate celebrations, but by the time Jesus is on the scene for a long time, many years, they had been celebrated as one thing. Passover, remembering how God saved us from the angel of death back in the Exodus story, Unleavened bread, remembering God's provision and the haste with which we escaped Egypt. All of this is supposed to be in our minds. It was in Jesus' mind, and as the reader, it should be in our mind too. As Luke says, this is the time we're in, building towards this hour. Even the most beginner reader of Luke would see the point. God will be doing in this story what God has done before. God in his 
sovereignty and providence has chosen to save the world from sin and death on the anniversary of when he saved Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. Rescuing his people from bonds that they are unable to escape from on their own. For all humanity is bound, is chained to sin and death. Everybody we know needs a rescuer. And God is choosing the celebration of the great rescuer of Israel to introduce us to the great rescuer of all of humanity. One might be tempted to think, if you were there at the time or if you're in the early years after this, one might be tempted to think that the salvation of Jesus came, uh, or the salvation that Jesus came to address was the problem of Rome. After all, Passover, it was a national rescue, right? It was the nation of Israel that got saved from the nation of Egypt. But the gospel writers have told us from the very beginning, from the birth narratives in Luke, as John writes his gospel very early at the baptism of Jesus, do you remember what he says and what, what Luke surely knew about as um, Jesus comes to be baptized, that John looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Not just to solve a national problem, not just to solve a cultural problem, but the sins of the whole world. Jesus would not only be the rescuer like Moses, he would be the lamb whose blood protects his people from death. And I just have to ask, as we sit here, you know, nice and buttoned up on a Sunday morning, I wore a button-down shirt, tucked it in, the whole thing. We have to figure out what kind of salvation we're looking for in Christ. It's possible to become disappointed in Jesus if what we want is a salvation that He didn't come to offer. Is Jesus the great healer? Uh, you should be quicker on the trigger on that one. Jesus is the great healer, but, but He didn't come just so we would be physically well. Jesus is the great provider, the great shepherd, and yet He did not come just to provide for us physically. Rather, He is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And if in your relationship with Jesus, you are looking for temporal stuff, you might find yourself disappointed. But if what you are looking for in your relationship with Jesus is the escape from the bonds of sin and death, then you will find joy in that salvation. Verse 7, the timestamps keep coming. Verse 7 says, Then came the day of unleavened bread. So, all of that, like the quickness of the escape from Egypt, there's this anticipation, there's this, this uh, kinetic energy that is involved with this celebration. That this was not, that, that this celebration did not start like, uh, you know, well planned and with everybody packed and ready to go, but rather it was, we don't even have time to put yeast in the bread. Let's go. Verse 14, then it's not just the day of the Passover or the day of unleavened bread, but rather verse 14 says, and when the hour came. 
This is the culminating event in the book of Luke. But more than that, this is the culminating event in all of human history. And as we enter into this, I mean, can you believe we get to just, between here and Easter, just focus on the passion of Jesus? Can you believe that nobody's going to stop us from doing that? Like, we get to come to church and think about this in a profound way any time we want to. But as we enter this most profound, most important portion of the Scriptures, I don't know what you think defines you. Maybe you think it's your past that defines you. Maybe you think it's your big ideas that define you. Maybe you think it's your sin that defines you. Maybe you think it's the sin of other people you've been sinned against and, and it's ever before you and, and that's what defines you. Maybe you think it's your righteousness. You just have your, your ducks are in such a neat little row. Maybe you think it's your good deeds that define you. Can I tell you that compared to the love of Christ on the cross, none of that matters at all. But rather, this story that we are embarking on over the next several weeks, this is what defines you. Does anybody love you? Look to the cross. Is there meaning in your life? Look to the cross. What should guide you? How should you make decisions? Look to the cross. As we read Scripture each week, you know, we hold it with reverence. No matter where we are between these two covers, we're on sacred ground. But as we read the Passion story, as we spend the next several weeks in the heart of the Scriptures, the heart of our faith, this is where we meet the true character and the nature of Jesus. And this is where we meet the true nature, the terrible, terrible nature of sin and death. So let's proceed with a deep sense of awe as we enter into the story of the passion of the Christ. And let's not look for primarily salvation from our earthly enemies or salvation from, you know, our, you know, lame bank account, or let's not look for salvation from a difficult relationship or our boss that's driving us nuts. No, instead, let's find in these pages salvation from sin and death for the whole world. This story happens on a day of preparation, at least that's where it gets going, and we get to see these different groups, how they are preparing, how do they spend this time of preparation. And so first, let's look at the opposition of Jesus, and we see that, first of all, that the opposition of Jesus is primarily spiritual. Satan makes an appearance. Where was it? Now the, um, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. Uh, for they feared the people, then Satan entered into Judas. And you know, in the Gospels, Satan, we don't hear things like that very often. Like that's an unusual, Satan is kind of working in the background a lot. There's a couple times where it kind of sticks his head up, but you could read long stories. And you know, the last couple, the last several weeks as we've been talking about Sadducees and Pharisees and priests, we've talked about kind of their earthly motivations. Why did these guys think this way? And why did they do what they did? But Luke does not want us to remember that, the power behind sin is personal. It is sin. It is Satan. Satan is presented as the force behind the plot to murder Jesus. 
Truly, the priests and the others have been desiring Jesus' death. But if it was a purely human act, then Luke would have no need to mention Satan. In fact, we might learn something important from the way Luke has described Satan's presence in the gospel. We haven't heard from Satan in a while. In fact, the last time we heard Satan's name, think about it, when would that be? It was the temptation. All the way back at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Satan tempts Jesus three times. Luke 4.13 says, And then the devil <coughs> had ended every temptation. He departed from him until an opportune time. So apparently Satan has found his opportune time. Let's not make too much of Satan and the demonic world, but let's not make too little of him either. Satan is smart. <coughs> He looks for opportune times to tempt. And we might think about that in our own lives. That we might not feel a lot of darkness, a lot of pressure, a lot of temptation, a lot of draw away from the Lord on an average day, but it might be at just the opportune time when we feel at our lowest that Satan chooses to attack. I don't know if you're familiar with the old, you know, just it's worldly wisdom, but wisdom nonetheless, that you should halt. Do you know this? Never make a big decision when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. It's pretty good advice. I've thought about that a lot too. Like hungry, well, we fast. Angry, yeah, the anger of man never produced the righteousness of God. Lonely, well, solitude is also an important spiritual discipline. And, and tired, all right, well, that happens. And I think there's just a big difference between I am withholding sleep. I'm on an all-night vigil. I'm withholding food. I'm fasting. I'm by myself so I can participate. Remember, the discipline of solitude is not to be alone, but it's to be alone with God. Richard Foster said that. He's right. It's beautiful. Um, but there's a big difference between, hey, I'm putting myself, I'm depriving myself of these things so I commune with, can commune with God, rather than I'm just frustrated, starving, tired, and angry at everybody, and so I'm going to make a bad decision right now. But in those times where we are most vulnerable, let's know that at least in the life of Jesus, in the life of Judas, Satan was waiting for an opportune time. Satan has found the person he contempt in Judas, and he has found just the right time to draw him. Ephesians 6 will remind us that our battle is not primarily against flesh and blood, but a rather against the powers and principalities and evil in the heavenly places. Acts will mention these men, these opponents of Jesus, and will allude to them in a very odd way. Acts will, will give us the line, and if you remember who wrote Acts, it's the same writer of our gospel here. It's Luke that wrote Acts. And he said that Jesus was crucified by the will of God at the hands of evil men. So he does not excuse Judas' actions. He does not excuse the selfishness and, and uh, religious abuse of the priests or the Sadducees. And yet, he says these things work together. Harden evil hearts and spiritual forces of evil work together. We can talk about this more on Wednesday night, but we would not say that Judas entered into a zombie-like state where he didn't have any control, but rather 
It was just the right time when he was at his weakest, when maybe he was unconvinced of Jesus' arguments as he debated the Pharisees, Sadducees, and priests. I don't know what was going on in Judas' heart. We don't know much. We can talk about it on Wednesday, and let's take wild guesses, and that'll be fun. But I'm not sure why. But for whatever reason, Satan had found his man, and he had found the right time. You know, earlier, last week actually, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus had, had talked about when hard times come and when, you know, the seas are raging and nations are warring against each other, and he uses language like, so stay awake. So stay on guard. Look alive, man. And this is what Judas had failed to do. So not only were there spiritual forces, but there were also those with religious power. And I think we're trained by our culture to feel um, to fear people who are very different from us, or maybe the obvious evil things. You know, I used to always say, like, um, when I was in youth ministry, and you know, mom found a like an Iron Maiden or a Slayer album in their kid's room, and you go, "Oh, we're worried about this," and I go, "Yeah, yeah, it's fine." I mean, yeah, you go ahead and talk to your kid. It's never a bad idea to go, "Hey, why do you like the, you know, why do you like the zombie mummy singer?" Um, but I don't think that's the biggest danger, is it? Isn't the biggest danger pop stars who have this veneer of goodness? Isn't that the most dangerous thing? Isn't the most dangerous thing not the obvious? Oh, that's different. It seems scary. Isn't the most dangerous thing that is so palatable for good Christian folks that we just spoon feed it to ourselves and people we love? We're trained to fear people who are very different from us and, and, and notice the, the sin in them. But it wasn't the raging, demon-possessed, naked guy running around the cemetery out in the Gerasenes that becomes Jesus' ultimate foe. It wasn't the raging storm tossing the little boat on the Sea of Galilee that sent Jesus to the cross. Rather, when ultimate earthly foes of Jesus showed up, they showed up wearing priestly robes and feigning religious disgust and self-righteousness. And maybe the message isn't that those with religious power are more likely to act in evil ways, but rather when people in religious power act in evil ways, they do the most damage. And we might be those who go, hey, we're not going to be impressed with titles. We're not going to be impressed with earthly success. Rather, the leaders that we're looking for, not only the leaders that we're looking for, but the leaders that we're trying to become are not typified by the fancy robe and the, um, and the um, earthly success of their position, but rather by Christ-like character. So, there's a spiritual component to the opposition of Jesus. There's a religious power component to the, uh, to the opposition of Jesus. And then there's also this personal, it's Judas. It's a guy who's been with Jesus in close proximity to Jesus for a long time. You know, you would think that, that just being around Jesus would be enough to be convinced of his authority. Like, how do you watch Jesus walk on water, raise Lazarus from the dead, and then go, we got to kill him? I don't know. But there's something profound to learn in that. You would think that Judas would know of the kingship and even the ultimate victory of Jesus. But in fact, 
It's the heart of the individual that decides what to do with Jesus. Luke doesn't spend a whole lot of time, but elsewhere we learn that Judas was a thief, that he had been stealing from the money bag the whole time. We learned that he was really never one of us. Luke handles it in a really like, Luke, uh, Luke is a great writer. And when he describes, you can imagine he's writing to this audience. And when he introduces Judas, he says, who was numbered among the 12. Then later, uh, at the, just later in the passage Judy just read for us, it says that Jesus sat down to eat with his apostles. So there's a little in Luke 22 that while Judas was there, while he was counted among the 12, he wasn't actually one of the apostles. But my point is this, that Judas didn't lose this fight with Satan that day. But there was a pattern. There was something that others even could see. Oh, he was actually a thief. You think about Judas speaking up as the, um, you know, the woman with the alabaster uh, jar breaks and anoints Jesus, and you know that's in the same time period. And and Judas is the one kind of speaking up and going, "Ah, it's a waste." Judas' heart was never really with the Lord, and it'd be easy for us to take that and go, "I know some Christians like that. I'm sure you do." Let's just not be a Christian like that. Let's not make proximity the thing that identifies us with Jesus, but rather our character that identifies us with Jesus. That we would be baptized, that we would take communion regularly, and then that our, our character would be so, okay, I, was, I umpired my first baseball game yesterday. Totally fun. You're out. <laughs> and the guy doing the game after me we have a common friend. Somebody introduced me to him, and he said he worked at the Monterey County Herald forever. And I said, oh, do you know my friend Orville? And some of you, many of you know Orville Myers, who's the, he's the pastor out in Kashawa. And so we're talking in the context of baseball and being on the paper, because Orville was the photographer for the paper forever. So nothing to do with Jesus. And this guy that I've never met goes, Orville Myers. Yeah, that's a guy that practices what he preaches. Amen. It's not proximity to Jesus. Although proximity to Jesus is super important. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But rather, it's Christ-like character that girds us, that strengthens us to not be vulnerable to Satan's attack. So then we get a chance to see the allies of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus. And I love especially Peter and John in our story today. Peter and John, look at, look at the contrast between Peter and John and Judas. Judas is off scheming and plotting with you know, the leaders in the community. What are Peter and John? Peter and John. You know what I'm talking about? Like These are not like, like just some guys off the street. These guys are going to write a lot of your New Testament. These are studs in the kingdom. What are they doing on the night before Jesus is betrayed, they have no idea. Rather, they lack understanding as much as Judas. Judas doesn't know what's going on. Peter and John don't know what's going on. But rather, 
They're just obediently following Jesus' directions. Hey, why don't you guys go prepare Passover for us? Okay, okay. Where do we do that? You're going to see a guy, and I don't know if this is divine providence or if Jesus had a plan, uh, had made a deal with somebody with the upper room. I have no idea. I don't care. Luke doesn't care to tell us. I don't care to know. But however it is, um, uh, Jesus says, you'll, you'll see a guy carrying a jug of water. That was usually a a female action, uh, not a dude action. And so he's like, you'll recognize him. He's a dude. He's carrying water. And then uh, he'll show you where to go. Okay. So they're on the grill. They're, get, they're setting up the, they're, they're being deacons. They're, they're setting stuff up. They have no idea how profound this night is. Just listen and obey. Second Peter 1.16, I don't have time, but I was planning on reading it to you, but Second Peter 1.16, as Peter's just getting into his great letter, he starts by saying, hey, we're not telling you things that we made up. Rather, we saw him. We touched him. We heard him. John 1 starts the same way. These are not cleverly devised myths, but rather, we are telling you what we saw, what we heard. We, we touched him. And yet here at this moment, they're just servants. And it is their service and obedience that prepares them for leadership later. Judas' character has never developed. He's not an obedient servant of Jesus. Rather, he's a schemer. He's trying to make things happen on his own. And this leads to being the betrayer. Leads him vulnerable, open to Satan's temptation, open to the work of darkness in his life. Peter and John are not doing some big religious mystical, they're not on a, I mean, they're going to fall asleep on Jesus in a couple of chapters. You know these guys. They're not doing some magical, wonderful thing. Rather, they're just doing what Jesus tells them to do. And this is what prepares them for great work later. And I think we need to think about that. The disciples of Jesus are simply listening and obeying, they lack understanding. And Judas, the lack of understanding in Judas produces betrayal because his character hasn't developed. But this lack of understanding in Peter and John produces obedience. Just do what I tell you to do. It is being with Jesus and obeying that changes your life. It is being with Jesus and obeying that qualifies you for leadership. It is being with Jesus and obeying that brings maturity in your life. And then, of course, let's look at Jesus. The sovereignty of Jesus. The control, the easy control and kingship of Jesus. As other forces including the forces of darkness in heavenly places and the evil. I mean, think about what Jesus is up against here. The, the, the evil, um, hypocritical, power-hungry religious leaders of his day and being betrayed by one of his closest associates. As all that is going on, Jesus proves to be the sovereign king of the universe and the sovereign king of this situation. First of all, he has a plan. Like I said, I don't know if Jesus set up this upper room thing before or if this is divine knowledge, 
But it's obvious who's in control either way. While the priests and Judas put their heads together to plot, Jesus simply does what he already has in his mind to do. In fact, I may be wrong. You can think about this, but I can't think of a time when Jesus steps aside to plot and plan. He goes to lonely places to pray. He seeks the will of his Father, but there's never any scheming. It is simple obedience to the Father and kingship. He will be imprisoned. He will be falsely accused and tried and crucified, but is never anything but in control. There hasn't been a point in Jesus' life where he wasn't in control. In fact, hasn't that been the reason for the Olivet Discourse as he prepares his people um, for, his, uh, you know, for, for his death, for the destruction of the temple, for, ultim- for ultimately he's, his ascension? He goes, look, nations are going to roar and so is the sea. And times are going to be bad sometimes and volcanoes and hurricanes and armies and the whole thing. But you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. So just hang on and be Obedient till then. I'm still in control. There's one kind of power that crushes everything around it. Jesus has a more profound power than that. Jesus is the oppressor crusher. Jesus is the one who need not be worshipped in order to be in control. To demonstrate power, Jesus doesn't have to draw it from anywhere else. He is the king. Not only does he have a plan, but he's selfless. If Jesus knows, as he surely and evidently does, that the time of his arrest is quickly arriving, what should he be doing? I mean, if we found out this week that it was going to be illegal to proclaim Jesus as king in a church service next week, what would we be doing next Saturday night? I'd be writing the sermon of my... Hopefully I'd be done by Saturday night. But if it was ever, if you preach the wrong thing, you and all of your congregation will go to jail, I think the title of that week's sermon would be the exact thing we're not allowed to say, and we'd all like... Go to jail together. We wouldn't have a problem with that, right? That'd be fine. But what would we be? We'd be calling loved ones, telling them goodbye. I don't know. But what's Jesus doing? He's celebrating this holiday. Some might show up ready to fight. Jesus seems concerned about two things, and I'll end quickly here. But first, he seems very concerned to honor his father. He wants to celebrate the Passover. He wants to tell this story one more time. You know, frequently if we dedicate a baby, I'll, I'll, I'll read a psalm that says that it is our responsibility to tell these dark stories of old to the next generation, that they might rise up and give praise to God for the great deeds that he has done. Jesus, the night before he was arrested, wants to tell the story of the escape from Egypt to the people he loves one more time. He wants 
to remember what God has done in the past. He wants to obey God today, and he wants to trust him for what's coming. That's what Jesus is doing. In uncertain and difficult times, we should follow Jesus' example. Remember what God has done in the past. Obey him today and trust him for tomorrow. He not only seems concerned about honoring God, celebrating the Passover feast, but he seems very concerned about his disciples. Verse 14 says, And when the hour came, he reclined. When the hour came, he reclined at table and his apostles with him. That just blows me away. Let's end here this week and begin here next week. That Jesus sat down to this meal with his disciples. Peter the denier. Judas the betrayer, Thomas the doubter, James and John who won't stop arguing about who deserves the most power. And they would all scatter when he needed them. But this is how he's preparing. Jesus isn't just their rabbi, not just their teacher. He's not just their king in an impersonal way. No, he loves these people. It was not merely duty that sent Jesus to the cross. It was love. And not just some agape, we have to love even our enemies kind of love, but real affection that sent Jesus to the cross. It was for the joy set before Him that He endured the cross, scorning its shame. In this hour, the hour of Jesus' passion is not... Only what defines Jesus is what he's going through, but it's the love that causes him to go through it. And as you read it, you need to know that that same love is what defines you. He is love, and we are the loved. What's going on in your head that keeps insisting that it defines you? Is it sin? Is it failure? Is it success? Is it mistakes? Is it fear of the future? They're all temporary, but the eternal love of God is available to you. Look to the cross. Look to the one who, on the night that he was betrayed, desired to sit down with the dudes he loved who were all a mess and tell them the story of what God had done one last time and give it new meaning. What God has done before, God is doing again in a brand new way. Hallelujah. You are loved. You are loved. Look to the cross and then let's act like it. If we were going to apply this, why don't we say these three things? First of all, you can trust the opponents of God to plot and scheme. I hear, I hear a whole bunch of things about, oh, did you hear what's happening now? Maybe I did. Was it on ESPN? I don't know. Um, I'm sure there's a new lie that everybody's buying into, and I'm sure there's going to be another one. And I'm sure after that, we'll make up something else. And I'm sure humans will be weird, and humans will be perverts, and humans will be power hungry, and humans will be, I know, the we can absolutely trust the spiritual forces of darkness. While Satan is a defeated foe, we can anticipate that he's going to put up a fight for a while longer. Not only that, 
but you can trust the victory and sovereignty of Jesus. We don't have to look at what the forces of evil and the greed of mankind is doing in our world and go, oh no, it might fill us with missionary zeal. You might quit your job and tell everybody you know about how much God loves them and they make that your full-time occupation, but it certainly won't fill you with fear. It certainly won't fill you with anger. It certainly won't fill you with hatred for your fellow man. Rather, you will look and go, oh my gosh, Jesus is so... The darker the world, the brighter the light. We can trust that Satan's going to do Satan stuff. We can trust that the world's going to fall for it. And you can absolutely trust the victory of Jesus. Look to the cross and look to the empty tomb. And lastly, Jesus' allies, those that are faithfully growing in a relationship with Jesus, are not the ones. Anybody grew up in youth group? Did you hear something about, you're, if you like something, you're going to do great things for Jesus? Yeah, maybe not in the world's eyes. Maybe it's not great things in the world's eyes that God has for you. But I'll tell you where it starts. It's simple obedience. Just go get the lamb and make dinner. It reminds you of the triumphal entry, doesn't it? Just go get the donkey. That's all you do. Those that are following most closely to Jesus are demonstrating it, not by changing the world, but by simple obedience and watching Jesus plant mustard seeds of faith that will grow into a huge kingdom. We are entering into just the, the very heart of our faith as we read these passages over the next few weeks. And I'm praying that we would, it would build courage in us, that it would build service in us, that it would build sacrifice in us, but more than all that, that we would revel in the great love and sovereignty, the kingship of Jesus of Nazareth. Can I pray? Heavenly Father, thank You for this story. Lord, thank You for Your love. God, thank You for the sharp contrast between You and all other forces. Lord, You are love you are desire to, to, to train us, desire to care for us, desire to pour mercy when we don't deserve it, while the forces of evil continue to spin their wheels. Lord, would you draw us to you and would you help us to have the courage not to do big, great things, but have the courage for simple obedience. God, would you make us obedient servants? Lord, may sin be far from us. May faithfulness be near. Lord, if there are sins that need to be confessed, I pray that your people would have the freedom to just confess them to you now. Lord, if there's fear that needs to be done away with and 
and, and love, identity, hope poured in. Holy Spirit, would you just do that now? Heavenly Father, you have our attention as we sing another song. Lord, would you draw us near to you? Would you deliver us from evil? For yours is the power and the glory, the kingdom forever and ever. Amen.
your righteousness and your eternal Remind us that your power and plans are not threatened by the schemes of sinful people or evil powers, and that we can find true peace and rest in you. We glorify you, for you are righteous, and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, Lighthouse. See you next week.